0: Retalia, and we will be reading today's scripture.
1: Today's passage is found in Genesis 6, verses 9 to 7, verses 10. These are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh had come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and finish it to a cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark in the side of it shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to, to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on your earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall make the ark. You shall make uh, you shall, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you and every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. You shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you. Keep them alive. As for you, take yourself some of food which is edible, and gather it yourself. And it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him. So he did.
0: Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household. For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you every clean animal by sevens a male and his female and of the animals that are not clean too a male and his female also of the birds of the sky by sevens male and female to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth for after seven more days i will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights and i will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that i have made noah did according to all that the lord had commanded him now noah, now noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth, then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and the birds and everything that creeps on the ground, they went into the ark, into the ark to Noah, by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about that after seven days the water of the flood came upon the earth. This is the word of God.
2: Thank you, Nevin. Thank you, Natalia. Um, part of the youth ministry. That's your first time here, my name is Pastor Ed. I'm one of three pastors, and uh, I, I pastor through the means of youth ministry. It's great to have you this morning. As you know from last week, uh, Pastor Ken launched us into this new series called Courageous Faith. And so he asked me to sort of tackle the first um, story or the first uh, sermon. And today, we'll as you know, that from our scripture reading, we'll be looking into the life of Noah. And, uh, you know, before I begin, let me just tell you, this is one of those sermons that just really beat me up. It beat me up in a good way, and it convicted my heart. And it was really hard for me to to to, to prepare for this, to assemble the sermon. Now, now, don't get all holy on me. I know every sermon that, that us pastors prepare for should convict our hearts, but this one... Ooh, this one did it to me, even up until last night, and so um, I'm just hoping that I make it through. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so let's begin. Uh, Today's sermon is entitled, Living at the End of the World. Now, I don't know about you, but the first place my mind goes to when I think about the story of Noah is when I was a little kid and what I learned as a little kid. Normally, I thought about Noah as, as a zookeeper. To get them on the ark, to feed them, to feed the animals, to put up with the smell, to clean up after them. And eventually letting them go out into the wild once we fall upon, once we come across land. And, and that's more or less true. I mean, that, all of it is true. It's, it's what it says in the Bible. But what's interesting to me, though this story picks up in the New Testament, when we read about it in the New Testament, it takes on a very darker, darker tone. And I think that's one of the few things that the recent movie of Noah got absolutely right. It carried this very dark tone. It's an apocalyptic story of ending a, ending a world in order to begin a new one. And that's the way the NT talks about it, the New Testament. Jesus doesn't mention the animals coming in two by two and taking care of them. That's not what Jesus focuses on. Instead, he says the end of the world is gonna be like Noah. He places Noah in the frame of an apocalyptic figure as he stood between the world that was and the world that was to come. So Noah has given us a picture of what it means to live at the end of the world. Now, this isn't a prophesying thing, this isn't a revelation thing, but what I am saying is us as a church, the universal church, the local churches, have always lived as an embodiment or a visible form of the gospel hope. The hope for the world that is straddling with the world that is and the world that Jesus, has promised us, Jesus promises us is coming. The church has always tried to find that balance. And Noah gives us helpful guidance as to what it looks like to live in that way. So join with with me in prayer. Father, as your word is delivered, Lord, I pray that the cross would be truly visible and seen. The Son of God would be seen, would be encountered as I deliver it to you behind this cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today I want to think together with you about what it means for Noah as he stood between these two worlds and what it would look like for us as a church to do the same. What would that look like for us as a church and personally? To stand out as we stand between two worlds. And we see that Noah points us in two directions and these are my two points for this morning. That one, we are to live countercultural lives, And two, we are to do it with counter-intuitive faith. So the first point: what does it mean to live a countercultural life? We see that Noah was clearly living that life. From the very beginning of the information we get about Noah in chapter six, the first thing that strikes us is how different his life looked when comparing the lives he lived among. In verse 9, we see that he was a righteous man, a blameless man, a blameless man in his generation. And then this phrase, Noah walked with God. This is actually the second time we come across this phrase, and it'll be the last. There are many times in in Scripture where we see that people walked before him, but this is the last time where we hear that someone walked with God. And so Noah is being compared with someone else in his family tree, and that's Enoch, that we would read about in chapter 5. Enoch walks with God. Now this was a way of communicating the blameless and righteous life that Enoch lived with God in a culture that was very different from his own, in in a culture that was very much walking the other way. Noah is being given the same compliment here, but with this compliment, we are to connect Noah with everyone else who came before him. This takes us back into the family tree and reminds us of who we are and how we live. And when the Bible talks about virtue and ethics and living a righteous and blameless life, it's never disconnected from who we are. Who we are has huge implications for how we live. Who's Noah? He's a family member of Seth. And who's Seth? Who is Seth? Seth's family was the first family to call upon the name of the Lord. Seth's family would be blessed to be the carrier of the promised seed. That through Seth's descendants, the Messiah would come to redeem, to win back what Adam and Eve had lost. In other words, Noah stands in line with those who have come before, and more than that, he is a member of the worshiping community. Now why am I belaboring you with this point? The reason why is because it's so, so easy to pick up the story of Noah on verse 9 and just totally focus on the fact that he was a blameless and righteous man. That he was one to walk with God. And just assume that Noah was a good guy. The thing is, we forget that his being righteous, his being blameless, has everything to do with him being favored by God, you see. What I mean is God doesn't save Noah because he is righteous. Noah is righteous because he's been favored and saved by God. Now I say this because we often forget this connection. That how we live has everything to do with how we are, who we are, and who we are has everything to do with how we live. Yet we tend to separate the two in our own thinking. Some of us focus on how we live and when we do so, this places a lot of emphasis on our behavior. Now this works out well in some ways when things are going well, when we are standing up to temptation, when we are reading the Bible, when we are part of a small group, when we are being patient with others, and when we are demonstrating all things God expects of us. And in some ways we take a certain pride if we're honest with ourselves. And standing up and standing out from the rest of our culture. But then, inevitably, when, not if, but when things don't go well, instead of standing up to temptation, we give in to it. We're not being patient. We're blowing up at our kids. We're blowing up at our spouses. We are shredding people's reputation. Instead of feeling good about ourselves, we start feeling bad about ourselves. The great theologian of the Reformation, John Calvin, he says this, this is, when this is what happens when your identity is based on your spiritual performance. You oscillate between spiritual pride and spiritual despair. And what he is saying is our identity has been shaped by our behavior and not by who we are in Christ. Bible tells us who we are is fundamentally shaped by being adopted into God's family on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not ours. And many of us get that. We say, I know, I know, God saved me, and I was a sinner, and it wasn't anything that I did. But you see, we get into this mindset that the reason why God keeps keeps us in His family, the reason why God puts up with our junk is because we are keeping up with the spiritual performance and we forget that even now, the reason why God is pleased with you and me and welcomes you still is because of his righteousness. It's not because you stayed blameless. And yet many of us live this way. Spiritual pride, the spiritual despair, swinging back and forth. Why? Because we have forgotten our identity has been shaped by Christ's righteousness and not ours. Now there's, a, there's another ditch on the road here. There's one where we swerve off and forget who we are. Then there's one where we swerve off and forget who we are and it shows that it has huge implications for how we live. So some of you are like, oh yeah, I love the gospel. I love the fact that I belong to God's family, that Jesus went to the cross to die for me. And for you that is good news. But perhaps some of you I've forgotten that if that's who you are, then it has huge implications for how you live. You're not in a driver's seat anymore. You now belong to Him. And your life belongs to Him. And that says a lot of things in how you live. And that's where Noah, that's where Noah gives us a picture of what that looks like. How us as a Christian, your life is meant to stand out. First of all, it's meant to be a life that is righteous. Now I've been tossing that word to you a couple times today and and that word should not surprise us at all because we encounter it all throughout Scripture. But what you might not expect is that word righteous has nothing to do with being good. In fact, a lot of us tie the word righteousness with a person that we assume that, oh, they know their Bible, they pray a lot. They, they, they're part of a small group. They do their devotions. They're kind to, to others. But when the Old Testament, when the OT talks about the righteousness, it talks more about our relationships with others. Here's an example. In Proverbs 11, verse 10, it says this, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. Now why does a city rejoice when the righteous flourish? The assumption is that the righteous are the ones looking out for the city. That they are the ones giving away their wealth for the greater good. That they are looking out for others. It is that they put themselves at a disadvantage for the sake of other people so that other people would be at an advantage, to give others an advantage. Now this gives us an interesting way to think about when we have lo- what we have laid out here in Genesis 6. Noah is part of a community. And his community was mostly made up of his family. He has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And within this community, even the act of building this ark, Noah is setting aside his personal agenda in order to serve, in order to care for his family, in order to preserve his life. He is serving others. And that's in contrast to what that's in contrast to that we have the rest, with the rest of the culture, which we read about in verse 11. So follow with me. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Now what is violence? Invi- what is violence? But an embodiment of people putting together, putting their own needs before the needs of others. To the point of doing violence to other people, emotionally, socially, physically, greed, lust, trumping everything else in life so that they are after what they need at the expense of everyone else. It's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. So if righteous is really talking about relationships with one another, then what in the world does it mean by being blameless? We could really understand that word, that word as describing Noah's relationship with God. It's a word in the rest of OT that is often associated with sacrifice. So a lamb or a heifer will be declared blameless as a sacrifice to God. Now that is an interesting imagery to think about when we see that with Noah and him being blameless. Noah's living a life of integrity, open and honest before God, giving his life before God. It's getting at this idea that Christian worship is not just what we do on Sundays, but everything we do is worship. Every thought, every word, everything by faith is lifted up to the Lord as an act of worship. Now this was countercultural for Noah's time, and we can safely say that it's definitely countercultural for us as well. One of the driving themes, one of the throbbing themes of Western culture, especially in the States, especially in Canada, is that your life is only good if you maximize personal happiness. And we got a little taste of that. We heard that from one of our testimonies last week where, where James was sharing that he filled his life with television, with video games, with cars, anything that he thought would make him happy. And that might be a shock to you, but generally speaking, this is what it means to live the good life. It means to express yourself, indulge yourself any way you want. And by all means, love yourself. Now I think I just summarized the canon of pop music. But it's loud and clear. And so for here's another illustration for those of you who are who are a Harry Potter fan. I loved Harry Potter. But if you could think back with me in book one, where, where Harry encounters the mirror of Erised. And anytime he looks in the mirror of Erised, anytime um, um, any what's, time, what's the redhead's name? Um, Ron. Any Ron looks into the mirror of Erised, what do they see? Ron sees, him, sees himself as a jock, as an athlete. And he loves it because that's what he values. When Harry looks into the mirror, what does he see? He sees his folks, he sees his parents. And what is Arised spelled backwards? Desire. Every one of us have our own mirror of Arised. Our own mirror of desire. It's loud and clear. The good life means to maximize personal happiness. Well, how different is that than the vision we've just been given of the righteous person saying... I'm not going to put my own needs first in my marriage, with family, with work, with people on my my team, with people in my community. In fact, I am there as an ambassador of Christ to put their needs before mine. And by the same token, I'm just going to indulge. I'm not going to just indulge myself. That's not what my life is about. My life is about an act of worship to God. And that means postponing in many cases what you think you want and need in order to fill God, in order to be faithful to God. So that when someone at work suggests that you massage the numbers a little bit so that the company looks better, so that it's, so the investors might, might be happy. That means you're actually going to say, you know what, we're not going to do that. We're not going to massage the numbers for the sake of our company, for the sake of our clients, for the sake of our investors. We're just going to do what is right. And when you do something like that, and perhaps some of you have already come across this, but when you do something like that, someone's going to approach you and say, now, why would you do that? Why would you not place yourself where you are at an advantage, where you will make a profit, where perhaps there's a possible promotion for you? Now, why would you do that? Why would you prevent your own personal happiness? Or perhaps this relates to you on a more personal level. For you to be challenged and say, I'm not just going to absorb our culture standards for, for what it means to be, I don't know, sexually healthy or, or our culture has an idea of what that means and our Bible has an idea of what that means and I'm not going to give in to what our culture says. So that might, mean, that might mean postponing the indulgence of certain pleasures, certain addictions, relationships, to break off certain relationships. We do that, and people ask, why would you do that? Why would you withhold this happiness from yourself? The point is to refuse to adopt all of these things in our lives. To be a Christian, by definition, it means we are to live against the culture in many of these ways. And to do that, I suggest we need to live with a counterintuitive faith. Which brings us to the second and last point. There needs to be an understanding that God's interpretation of reality and what is true often conflicts with our experience. That's what I mean when I say counterintuitive. I don't mean irrational. I don't mean unreasonable. I simply mean that there are certain things God says about the way things are that when we look around, they seem implausible. They're difficult to believe. Now, I know a lot of us know the story of Noah. And we know how it works out. That what God, hold, what God told him up front ended up coming to pass. And he's pretty happy about that, God, uh, Noah. That God gave him all this information about the ark. Like at the end of the day, this is all good news to him. And he could look back and see that everything God told him, got, got, it happened. It was plausible in light of what happened. But church, just for a sec... Be with Noah. Kind of be with Noah in that moment as he's getting all this information and recognize how much faith and courage it took for him to receive all these things and to believe them. I mean, for God to come to him out of the blue and say, in verse 13, then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Now, Noah certainly saw violence. He saw corruption. And he saw how heavy the world was. was. I mean, we shouldn't diminish how traumatic this announcement should be that the end of all flesh will be destroyed. It'll die by a flood. I mean, Noah has to believe that that in despite of all the empirical evidence, God's interpretation of reality and the future is the true one. That's why Hebrew 11, Noah is described as having faith to build the ark. Not just the ability or the know-how, not just in the skills, but it took faith to build the ark. Why? Because he's building it on dry land. it would be one thing for God to say, Noah, in three days a flood is coming, but you know what? You're in luck because the ark has already been built for you and it's resting on top of a mountain. All you got to do is hike one click in, bring your family, hop in, and hold on. Now that would be one way of doing it, but that's not how faith works. Faith means we believe God's word over experience. It takes faith. And it took faith for Noah to build the ark. To follow all these directions. I mean, it's not like he was building a, a toy boat. He was, a, he was building a boat that was 400 feet long and four stories high. I don't know about you, but to me, that's massive. And think about the time it took for him to build it. It's not like he had the technology. Think about all the ridicule he endured during that time. If anything, he was definitely an, ent- an entertainment value for everyone who encountered him. Noah, why are you building this boat? Oh, because there's a flood coming. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah, right. In fact, theologians have often speculated how persecuted Noah must have been. It's one of the reasons, perhaps, why Peter describes Noah as a herald or a preacher of righteousness. He may have been standing up in front of a half-constructed ark and declaring the Word of God and preaching sermons galore. Or, he may have just preaching by the mere fact that he's building this ark and that he's doing it with passion and with faith. That's a description of what it means to have a counterintuitive faith in a secular world, doesn't it? Sometimes we feel like Noah, like, what in the world are we doing Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist, tells a story about his brother, Dmitri, and how they grew up in a very secular, atheistic home. But when Dmitri went off to college, off to university, he came back as a Christian. And Tolstoy tells the story of his older brother, he started to do things like fasting, like praying and taking all this stuff seriously and going to church. And Tolstoy says that everyone in his family, even, even the older members of the family, were brutal to him. They were just ridiculing him because of his faith. And for some reason, Tolstoy says that in his memoirs, he says, for some reason, we kept calling him Noah. I thought that was weird. But the more I thought about it, I, said, I thought, you know, that's actually an apt nickname. Not only for him, but for us. We realize that for us to believe God's interpretation of reality, it looks like building an ark to a lot of people. And it sometimes feels like that. And it's not just building the ark that requires faith. It's also boarding the ark. It's one thing to build it, but to actually get in on it, because you trust it, because you believe in it. That requires faith. So think about this for a sec. No one is family. Build the ark. And they get on it. And seven days go by. Now, you know that conversation that you have, or that you have in the car, when, your spouse, when you're driving and your spouse looks over and says, do you know where you're going? And you, the driver, just don't, doesn't say anything. It gets to you. It gets to your mind. And you're thinking, believe in me. Have faith. I know where I'm going. But then that conversation continues and say, why didn't you go the other way? And you're thinking, I don't know, maybe I should have, I don't know. But think about the conversation that's going on in the ark right now. Can you imagine that? I mean, the doubts that they're having. Like, they sit in an ark. No flood is coming for seven days. The wife's thinking, uh, you sure you have this right? Did we miss a part of this? Did we miss something here? This is completely crazy, and yet this is the life of faith. These questions that we come across from time to time that creep into our minds. Am I crazy for believing this? Could this really be true? Do I have this right? Can I trust what God says? Now, when the flood starts, right, and the rains come and the ark begins to lift and it's being crashed here and there, the questions aren't the same anymore. The questions aren't so much, did we hear God right? But now it's like, did we design this right? Did God design something that's going to hold up? Does He know how to save us? Will He get us through this? Church, keep in mind that this ark, this simple box, has no rudder. They have no control. They submit and trust the waves and the hand of God. In fact, John Calvin, as he was preaching on this text, suggested that it was a greater act of faith for Noah to board the ark than to build the ark. Calvin put it this way Noah's most severe test of all was this to bid farewell to the world, to renounce society, to bury himself in the ark. You see, Calvin is picking up this language of self renunciation that Jesus talks about. When we come to Christ, we are dying to ourselves that our lives might be preserved. Calvin is working with Noah and he says, for Noah to come into the ark is like Noah descending into the grave. This is the nature of faith. This is why I say that who we are in Christ has everything to do with how we live. You cannot separate these things. You can't say Christ died for me and then not begin to come to terms of what it means to die to yourself and to live for Him. Noah was in the captain's wheel in the ark. He was in the bowels of the ship. He was trusting himself to to what God had provided for him in his salvation. And that's not always a comfortable place to be. The most recent movie of Noah with Russell Crowe, I found to be so entertaining. I loved it, to be quite honest with you. I loved it. I mean, that's all it was to me. And I think that's all it was meant to be, just entertaining. Theologically wrong, yes, all over the place. But entertaining, oh yeah, I loved it. And I was reading an article where the director is sharing some of his insight into the movie and his thought process. And this is what he had to say. He shared, he was, get your mind, wrap your mind around this. He shared that he was a non-religious Jewish, Jewish man. And he was reflecting on the moment when Noah went into the ark. And he said, I always thought about that moment as the most terrifying moment of the whole story. And the reason why I think about it as the most terrifying, terrifying moment of the whole story is because if I think I were there, I wouldn't have been good enough to get into the ark. That's what he says. Now, I don't know what he means by that, but I'm just going to assume I know what he means by that and say, church, getting into the ark, for Noah, getting into the ark was never, ever about being good enough. That's not why God saves us. And it's not how God saves you the world. Let me close with this. Church, actually the ark, is a picture of what it means to come into Christ. It means we recognize our need for rescue and God has provided the way. And that way is Christ, and we flee to Him and we seek refuge in Him. It's not about being blameless and righteous enough. And that's not only counterintuitive to our culture, but it's also counterintuitive to us. The reason why it's counterintuitive to us is because all of us right now in our lives are hard at work with our own construction projects of our own arcs of safety. Like there's just something inside of us that we do not want to flee to Christ with. We want to flee to the arcs of our own making. And some of those things are good, they're great. Some of those things are work, family, friends, our good reputation, physical appearance, our health, our athletic prowess, our good grades. It can be anything God puts us for us to care deeply about. And yet, they can become everything to us. And when we feel threatened or feel anxiety, that's where we go. And when those things are threatened or people challenge us in our competency or ability, we get angry because they are talking about the place we go to feel safe. Now, there are other places we run to that aren't good for us. There are places we go that give the illusion of safety, security, addictions, compulsions, all these things. They numb us for a while. And we know those things don't provide a clear safety safety to us, but in that moment, it's all we got, so we run. We run to things that promise us nothing. We run to things that didn't even promise us anything in the first place. However, in this story of Noah, Noah was given a promise and that promise is also for us. God promised us something that has never failed since the day he made it with Noah. The promise God made to Noah was that no flood would ever fall upon or swallow the earth again. That he would not bring destruction to us again. And this promise came in the form of a rainbow. Now the real word used in the Bible is not rainbow. In fact, it's translated as bow. Bow as in war bow, a battle bow. Isn't that cool? Every time you see a rainbow, picture a bow being stretched and cocked. God is saying, "I grieve that the sin in the world that there 's sin in the world, and I grieve that there 's sin in here still, but I will not cast and cock my bow on you again, but I will point it at myself. Why is there still sin in the world? because even though Noah played the middle man, he brought sin with him. Sin was on that ark. perhaps that is why the root of why we see noah 's story end with him being naked and drunk and, and totally hung over in shame and bring in his family shame. To be honest, church, I don't blame the guy. I think if I, after all that I went through, I'd probably do the same. I mean, that's major PTSD for for Noah. It's probably PTSD for me too. Now this ark, it may be a picture of what it means to come into Christ. It may have played a great role in saving Noah and his family, but it did not get rid of the darkness and the sin of the world. The ark was not to and doesn't fix the problem of the world, but the sign, the rainbow, is pointing to the solution of the problem. God himself made visible through Christ. How so? That in order for Christ to preserve our lives, he took it upon himself to lose his. That in his own way, that in Christ's own way, he too entered the ark. But for him, it came in the form of a tomb. And when he came out, a new world was made available to us, to you and I, if we should believe. Like Noah, Christ stands between the world that is and the world that is to come. And not only that, if you think about it, there's a great imagery of, do you, there's a great imagery of baptism, is there not? And many of you witnessed three of our members die to the world okay, going into the ark. That they may be raised out of the waters into new life. For Noah's salvation came through bidding farewell to the world that was and entering the world that was and entering into that ark. But in Christ, our greater Noah, our ultimate salvation comes through Christ's death. And what Noah shows us is that to live for Christ, to stand out as we stand between the world that is and the world that is to come, means that we are to be a people who stake our lives on Christ are those who flee to safety in Christ and in Christ alone. And in our identity in doing that, it changes the way we live. We realize our lives are no longer to live, but to give away to God and His glory. Let's pray. Father, thank You that in Your Word You teach us not only who we are, but also how we ought to live. We ask, Holy Spirit, that as we leave, that you would help us in these things, that we might live with our hearts giving over promptly, moment to moment to Christ, that even now in these few moments, that we would give ourselves over to you once again, asking that you would lead us. Each of us know the challenges that await us, this, await us in this week. Help us today in our rest as we find our rest in you. So that we may be refreshed and renewed for whatever is to come our way this week. That we might draw great strength from you and your gospel. In your son's most beautiful and holy name. Amen.